Welcome to the Recipe for Residency podcast, where we invite medical doctors from all stages of their training and ask them questions regarding their path to residency and how they were able to successfully match into the specialty of their choosing, and more importantly, the advice they would give to any student trying to match into the same field. My name is Austin Mefford. I am a third-year medical student at the University of Texas Medical Branch, and I will be your host. Today, our guest is Dr. Donnell Shoddy. Dr. Shoddy is the Assistant Dean of Clinical Education and a Professor of Psychiatry here at UTMB. Dr. Shoddy, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. So I just kind of wanted to uh, kind of start off by just, you can tell the listeners about your background, where you went to school, and, and your kind of path to medicine. Okay. So I went to medical school at Baylor College of Medicine. Um, I decided very, very, very late that I wanted to become a psychiatrist. And so I didn't actually even apply until after I had applied and interviewed in another specialty. So I believe that year, December 17th was the last day to apply in ARIS and December 15th, I put in my application to psychiatry. Because of that, I applied only to one program, my home program, um, because it was going to be too complicated to do anything else. I stayed at Baylor because I really enjoyed the program too. So, um, and then finally decided that to get a little bit broader perspective when I decided to pursue child and adolescent fellowship to go across the street and go to UT Houston. So I've actually worked at all three medical schools in this area. In the med center. Nice. In the med center, yeah. Well, how was that? I mean, applying to one, one program, I mean, what if you don't get in? Then you sit out a year, and I definitely would not recommend that in this day and age. I think people need to be more thoughtful, and um, and I realize that that's a stressor for the students, that they start stressing from day one, where am I going to go to residency? Um, I think things work out for a reason, and, and, um, and it was just, that was the right fit for me, and it was well suited to what I was interested in. Um, I was, if I had to look at all programs, I think I would have found something that was the same type of program. It was a balance of psychotherapy and pharmacology and a really well integrated. And there's different people who want to do different things in psychiatry and some want a more therapy-based program and some want a more biological program. And there's ways to find the program that fits for you well. And then there's balanced programs that, that kind of do everything. Right. And I mean, and as far as an applicant is concerned, are the programs very, um, do they advertise what kind of program they are to where an applicant can kind of gear their applications towards what they kind of want? Or do you just kind of figure it out when you interview? You can look at their website and some programs have really good websites that say this is who we are and some programs have not as good of websites. Um, there's all kinds of circulating materials out there that, that students circulate and you can look up. Um, there's word of mouth. I think if people are really interested in psychotherapy, look for a program that is affiliated with a psychoanalytic institute. That is one way to know I'm getting a therapy um, heavy program and kind of you can look nationwide that way. Um, I think most programs assume they're pretty well balanced unless you hear otherwise. Right. You know, um, I think the other thing that people may look for, especially when they're looking at a psychiatry program, is 
how many fellowships do they have? Some people don't want to do a fellowship training, but they don't know for sure. And so having the experience to work with different fellowship directors, different fellows throughout the time kind of helps them decide on what they want to do. Or maybe they want to be able to stay put in the same area. And so if you find a place that has the fellowship training that you know you want to do eventually, um, it's kind of easier to just pick that from the beginning. Right. And and that's a good point because I when, when you go into residency, or I guess I'm just speaking for myself, I don't dream of doing a fellowship and having yet another stage of not making a doctor's salary and another not paying your loans exactly off, yeah. not paying my loans off and just you know eating Taco Bell three times a week. But um, that's that's a very good point, um, and especially psychiatry being such a vast field. Um, and I, that, that's a very important point. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. And speaking of that paying loans off, the other thing to be thinking about in specialties is not to say, oh, I can't do that. I won't make money to pay my loans off. There are places in child and adolescent psychiatry where you can go for loan deferral programs and you can work with an underserved population. And so maybe you spent an extra year in, in training and I won't even tell you how much, how long you have to work to make off what you <laughs> do in interest, depending on your loan. But one of my colleagues has figured that out. But there are places that can do loan deferrals for underserved areas if there's a specialty that's underserved. And Texas is one of the states that does do that. Oh, that's good. That's good to know. Because I know a lot of people, they talk about the government loan deferral program. And then it's kind of it's kind of approached with a little bit of skepticism because it's like you die before the the government will actually pay off your loans and and so that's good to know that there's other options available for me i would have been able to do it in four years and had a commitment to pay off my loan so it wouldn't it's not an onerous task depending on what it is you're looking at okay good good okay well i just want to move a little bit forward and talk about kind of when you were a medical student um i know it wasn't that long ago so i'm sure you remember very well um, what was it like approaching the match, approaching trying to get research or mentorship? If you could elaborate on that a little bit. So I think it wasn't as competitive back in the day, um, as long ago as that was. And I don't think that students, I think students put more pressure on themselves even now than they probably should. So you can look at the NMRP match data and say, this is how many experiences people had. This is what their step score was in each specialty. And then people use it as gospel. I can't get in unless I do this. Um, And I think there's a lot of ways to make a really strong application. Um, I think having a persistent desire to do something that's really well thought up, that you can have a really coherent narrative, this is why I'm choosing this special. I think doing really well in your clerkships and showing that you're really great with patients or with what that disease process is or with what the management is or working well with the team. I think those things go a long way. Um, I think students tend to underestimate the value of conscientiousness when they've done surveys of residency program directors of who is the problematic residents for them that they have had to work on. Conscientiousness is always at the top of the list. And that is why one of the things we on is turning things in on time and meeting deadlines is because I want to make sure that you know how to do that because that's going to matter for residency more than that you have whatever nature paper or something like that. Now there are some programs that you know to get into that program you need to have you know first authorship in in 
in nature or something like that. Um, that that's just not most students. Um, and so it's all about finding that right fit. What do you want to be doing? Who do you want to be doing it with? Do you want to do research ultimately and get funding while you're still in residency and expand that career? Then you probably do need to have some background before you go in and look at programs that are strong in research. Um, so I think it's really about the person and what they want to do. Right. Well, that, that that's a good that's a good point because I even know I'm personally interested in plastic surgery as of as of now, and I just recently came to to find that. Um, but research is, and I know every every specialty is different, but I mean, especially with those surgical subspecialties, research is their their capstone, and um, you get caught up in. And I'm speaking from myself. I am victim of this, where you go through spreadsheets, and it's like, okay, well, I need. 18 million publications and 900 first author publications to match into the specialty. Um, and I think, I think you bring up a good point as far as just conscientiousness and a holistic application and a good narrative as to why you want to do that specialty other than, Oh, it's surgery. And I like working with my hands. Exactly. And so I think that if you have passion for something, you will stick with it more. And I would rather see somebody who maybe was a little late to finding that they wanted to do that specialty and then didn't, and then spent the time doing stuff that was really meaningful to them, that was really useful, as opposed to signed up to go do this lab and signed up to go do this volunteer project and then didn't have time for anything. And then you know, they don't, one, they haven't learned something from it. And two, it's hard for somebody to say, oh, I want to work with that person. They're really conscientious and they're going to show up and get the project done. I think don't spread yourself so thin because you think you have to based on all the spreadsheets you saw. Right, right. And and that's a really good point. And, you know, we, we kind of talk that med school applications and residency applications could not be any more different that whenever you're applying to medical school, um, you know, you're interviewing with people who you probably will never see again, ever. <laughs> I know at least for me, one of the two people who interviewed me, I have never seen them on campus. Um, and then for residency programs, you know, they have to look across the table and think, is this person going to annoy me after 30 minutes, much less 80 hours a week, you know? Because they're interviewing a colleague at that point. They are not interviewing a student. They're interviewing somebody that is this somebody that when they get done with residency, might they want to go into academics and stay here at my program? Or might I want to recommend them to go into private practice with so-and-so? Um, and so it's, it is a little bit different. Um, yeah. So, and as far as psychiatry... Um, what were the, I know you said you only had one, one interview, but I guess just in your experience being a psychiatrist and being in academic medicine, what is the one thing that you would advise an applicant to bolster in their application when applying to psychiatry? I think make use of the advice of the mentors. So here we have advisor programs and we have specialty specific advisors. And so those people have spent a lot of time thinking about how many programs should somebody apply to, um, what is going to be a safety program for this student is not going to be the same safety program for a different student. And so how do I make sure that they have a, a broad enough, um, application that they're applying to enough programs that they're not 
not finding the program that's a good fit for them, um, but also interviewing and getting potential interviews at, at enough places that, that they will get a secure a match. Um, so talking to advisors, um, because for some people, they've had some academic hiccups and there's some ways that they can um, kind of explain that and show that they've grown from that. Um, and other people don't have that, but maybe they're looking for um, a particular type of fellowship or need to be near family. And so they're limited geographically. So kind of talking to people about what to do there. Advisors will help with how many letters of recommendation do you need and, you know, who might be a good letter writer for you and, and things like that. So I think it makes, I think it makes sense to make use of that resource. And that's a, and then you bring up another good point there with the letters of recommendation. Um, just speaking with faculty in the hospital and things like that, certain specialties are very, I would say, um, exclusive when it comes to who writes you a letter of recommendation. If I'm applying to neurology, then I really, really need letters of rec from other neurologists. And um, if I had a letter from a psychiatrist, they would say, okay, trash, you know, and I, I didn't know if psychiatry is a similar, a similar field, or if you guys are a little more open. So this past year, we actually had guidelines for the field that because of what happened with COVID, please be lenient on the students. Them not having three letters from a psychi- from three different psychiatrists does, probably doesn't mean they couldn't find them. It was just the vicissitudes of COVID. Um, I think in general, people like to see two letters from a psychiatrist. And then generally, um, there's some programs that require an internal medicine letter or a primary care letter or something outside the field, because we are going to be working with a lot of different providers. Not every program does that. So if you know in advance, I want to apply to this program, you can look up online what their requirements are. Um, I think finding somebody who knows you well, that can speak to your clinical skills goes much farther in psychiatry than somebody who's the chair of the department that may not have ever met you. Um, and so I think we've moved away from program as many programs requiring a chair's letter and more that are wanting to know this is what in the trenches, this person can do. This is what I've seen them with my own eyes be able to do. Right. And you definitely anticipated my next question because, you know, I, as a student, you want to approach the most prestiged faculty with the longest name and all the letters after their name. And so that, for some reason, we think that gives whatever they're saying merit. And um, I guess in reality, it's way, way, way better to have a detailed and thorough letter from someone who just has MD on the end of their name as opposed to 18 other other doctorate degrees. Yeah, and I'm not saying it hurts you to have somebody who's prestigious writing your letter, but it needs to be somebody who can really speak to who you are. So you may think of somebody who had a longitudinal course with you. So here we have the the palms. And so somebody who knows you kind of long-term that way um, might be able to write a great letter because they saw what you could do for your leadership skills. Right. Okay. And as far as, you know, at UTMB, we have, we have really good programs in place for mentorship and, and research and things like that. But if a student is at an institution where they don't have that guidance, how would you suggest, because cold calling 
doctors is pretty intimidating. Yeah, um, yeah it would put me into tears. Right, if I had exactly. To do that. You send out 18 emails and then no one responds, and you're like, okay, well. So that's where the national organizations come in. So the American Psychiatric Association and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry both have sites for medical students on their website, psych.org and acap.org. Um, and there they actually ever have interviews with people who are in the field. Why might I want to do this field? So very beginning people can listen to folks who are doing a variety of different things and they can, you know, watch those videos, but they also have guidelines for applying and how do you make the best application and, and things like that and applying for outside mentorship. So there are some programs with ACAP, for example, where you can try to get a mentor over the summer um, or get some advice from people. And I think that can be really helpful. It requires a real go-getter student to be able to recognize, I need to go do, do this. Um, this is going to help my application. And so um, I don't think schools look down on if you haven't had that kind of level of advising or somebody to help you with your personal statement. But these organizations want to help. Adam Sepp, um, the American Directors, uh, excuse me, the Association of Directors of Medical Student Education and Psychiatry, is putting out some modules on how to write a personal statement and have done some workshops to help students prepare their personal statement because we want to help. We want people to find the best spot for them um, and, and, make that match. Right, right. No, and, and that's very important. And the reason that I'm even starting this podcast is because even at an institution like this one, where we have these kind of safe holds in place, mm-hmm. you still feel I'm the first in my family to do anything like this. Mm-hmm. And so it's very new territory for me. Um, and so hopefully, um, people listening to this podcast can hear those. We'll link those uh, resources that you just mentioned in the show notes um, and be able to take away from that because um, those resources are invaluable. And, and if you don't ask, you would really not know about them. And so, so definitely um, I'm, I err on the side of asking too many questions as opposed to not enough. Um, but moving forward, how, um, you know, we always talk about OA rotations. And I know with COVID, it was one of the biggest hit parts of, of medicine. How important is that in psychiatry? And would you recommend people to do that? I don't think it's important in psychiatry. I think um, that it's a good idea if you 100% know I want to go to this program and I've never been able to work there and you're willing to walk away from it if you don't like it. Um, but I also think it's a great deal of pressure on a, re- on a student I need to make a really good impression and you need to make it for the entire month you're there. You need to be on your game. So make sure that you know your information, you know your way around, you know how to ask for help when you need it um, in terms of kind of putting on a good effort so they can really see who you are. Um, I've had students who've done away rotations and then, you know, need to do residency interviews during and it looks like they're not there and it looks like they don't care. And so you have to be really cautious about that. Oh, I didn't even think about that, the scheduling with all of that. And I know away rotations, it's one big, long interview. And if you make a really good impression, then your chances of matching are exponentially higher. However, if you make one big mess up and that's what the attendings or the program directors think about, then better luck next time. Right. And you don't know what they'll key in on and things like that. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessary. I do think it's helpful if you know you want to go there to see if it's a good fit for you. This is all, this is not about them choosing you. It's about you both finding a good fit of where's going to be the best place that you're going to get the most out of your education. And, you know, I think when applying to residency and even medical schools, we think in the opposite direction, you know, it's like, 
I just want to impress them. But it's really, it's, they need to impress you as well. And especially you're going to spend three to seven years at a program. You better, you better like it and enjoy it. Exactly. Exactly. And feel comfortable there that you can trust the people who are going to be teaching you. Okay. So just some miscellaneous things, um, just to kind of wrap it up. So would just like to hear your thoughts on the USMLE step one, the the pass fail. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Or is it an indifferent thing? Oh, like good, bad, the ugly. Exactly. Um, exactly. I think it's probably a good thing. I don't think the test was being used the way it was intended. Um, way back when, I would predict half the students are going to be upset because they were above the average and half the students are going to be really happy because their scores were would have been below average. Um, and so I think on a personal level, everybody's going to have a different idea about that. But I don't think it was being used the way it was intended. I think it was putting undue pressure on the students, which... I'm not one to take away pressure. You're going to be going into a high pressure job. I want you to be able to handle that, but I don't, I don't think it was necessary to say this is going to be a good doctor. It was always saying what all tests are saying that you're a good test taker. And then there are all these biases that are built into why that is as well. Right. Right. And no, and that's true. But what, what do you think about how the utilization of step two now? Because, you know, I mean, we, these programs and especially the uber competitive programs, you know, as, as cutthroat as it is, medicine and program directors kind of have to have a strata, if you will, of who is more qualified than others. So do you think step two will kind of step in and take the place of step one? I think people will put more weight on step two, but I also think the onus is on us as educators to find ways to present more holistic data that program directors can trust and use. Um, I don't know how to do that in a quick way that they can do a quick screen, but to be able to provide more information to programs so that they can make a good decision as to who should I invite, who might want to come here, who might be a good fit. And I think we're kind of moving in that direction as medicine as a whole, because AOA used to be the gold standard of a smart, qualified applicant. And now, um, although it is certainly a very prestigious honor, it is not a prerequisite to getting into these prestigious programs because they realize that, I mean, not every AOA person is the same. And there are people that are not AOA that could arguably be more qualified than someone who has those letters. And be a better fit for that program. I think it's really all about that goodness of fit. And who do I want to work with? Who am I going to be proud of as a graduate? Right. Yes. And thank you for emphasizing the fit, because like I said, I mean, I'm a third year, so I'm just now approaching kind of gearing up for residency applications and my nose is down in the books and worried about, you know, how I'm going to match into the program and not how the program is going to fit me and the program will fit together. So I think that's very, very important to keep stressing. Well, and be focusing on as you go through your rotations, how do I learn best? So you're going to have different things that you do in different clerkships. So is a night float system, you you might get experience with a night float. Does this work well for me? Or should I be on some other different type of structure? Right. What is just, again, kind of shooting some miscellaneous questions just for fun. Um, what do you think in your experience doing interviews, I'm sure you've been to a lot of them over the years, is the the most unexpected or craziest interview question that you've been kind of tasked with. It kind of stuck you there and you don't know. I I always hated the question, what are your biggest strengths and weaknesses, which 
when you're applying for med school, you don't you don't know it all. And that was one of my med school questions. And so my biggest weakness is chocolate. And so then she laughed and it's not really a meaningful question or whatever. I do think that's a better question for residency because you should be doing some self-reflection before you get there. These are the things that were easy for me in med school. And these are the things that I'm still working on and that I haven't gotten to yet. Um, so anticipate some sort of question like that, which is really hard for most people and it does take some soul searching. And I think that is probably the hardest interview question because you also don't want to give a strength disguised as a weakness like, oh, I'm just a perfectionist or, oh, I'm just too attentive to detail and it's and it's and it hinders my performance because then that's like, mm, okay, whatever. Right. You want something authentic. You know? Right. Okay, well, um, this was a very great discussion. I'm very glad you were able to... to come on the show with us. So a huge thank you to Dr. Shadi for being so brave as to being the first victim <laughs> of the show. We look forward to having many more fruitful discussions in the future from all other physicians in a range of specialties. Thank you guys for listening. And if this is your first time, please subscribe for more. If you would like to know more or have any additional questions from me or Dr. Shadi, you can definitely email us. I will, I will link our emails in the show notes as well. So feel free to reach out and we will catch you next time for more ingredients on the recipe for residency podcast. Perfect.